or your family of origin, what are the things that define your particular family? In other words, if you took that away, and that may not be a physical thing, it could be something, an idea or a habit or a tradition, if you took that away from your family, you would lose a part of your family's unique identity. Do you know what I mean? Like, what, what is it for you, your family of origin, your current family? Well, for the co-family as it is now, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, but for us, I thought long and hard about this. Some of you may totally get this because you know us pretty well. For the co-family, unfortunately, it's toilet humor. No, honest, it's toilet humor. Karen got a little bit sick of how crude we are. And so a, a week ago, we had a one-week trial where we had a chart so that every single member of the co-family who said anything inappropriate had to put a mark on that chart, and it cost us 20 cents per mark. Let's just say we've raised enough money for Africa. No, um, if you, you, want, you want to know the results of that, Ethan is like about $5 down. Um, and I didn't come off the worst, so there you go. Uh, for us, unfortunately, it's toilet humor. Um, if you know our family a little bit, we kind of like talking about uh, stuff. And, and, um, and I think if you, like that week, and it's now over, thankfully, that week was just so strange for our family because w we just didn't feel like us anymore. What is it for your family? What if we widen it a little bit? What about suburbs? So, for example, you think about the suburb you live in. What is it that defines your suburb that if you took it away, it would just not be your suburb anymore? For example, Hurstville, right? If you took Chinese people away, <laughs> Cabramatta, yeah, you took Vietnamese people away, or, or the eastern suburbs, you take money away. <laughs> Sorry, it's true. What about, let's widen it even further, cities, Sydney. What if you took beaches away from Sydney? It'd be different, right? Or the harbor away from Sydney. What if you took cafes away from Melbourne? What if you took politicians away from Canberra? I don't know what else they have, really. Um, how about country? Let's widen it to countries. What about Australia? You know, well, what is it about Australia that if you took it away, um, you know, maybe beaches as well, barbecues, I don't know. England, the royal family. USA, the Kardashians. I mean, that's a little bit of a joke, but I, honestly, like, if you took celebrity culture away or pop culture away from the U.S., it just wouldn't be the U.S., would it? Um, Asian cultures, doesn't matter which Asian culture, it's usually the food, yeah? You take Chinese food away from the Chinese culture or Vietnamese food or Thai food away, and it, Japanese food, it'd just be very empty and hollow for that country. Now, the reason why I mention this is because for the people of Israel or the Jews, the Old Testament people of God, and even today, if you ask them, what is it that defined them? What is it that if you took away, they would no longer be them? It would just be like a big hole in their national identity. That thing would be the law of Moses. Yeah? It would be the law of Moses. Or roughly summarized, the first five books of the Bible. Because this defined their entire identity as God's special people. It defined every aspect of life for them, especially in Old Testament time, from the big, you know, to, to, the, to the, holiday, like the, the national celebration days, to the tiny things, like what kind of clothes you were not supposed to wear, what kind of foods you couldn't eat. It was everything to them. It was their identity, it was their pride, it was their uniqueness. Now, in the book of Romans, and in fact in a lot of Paul's letters in the New Testament, Paul who wrote Romans, 
that whole thing becomes seriously undermined. That is, Jews found themselves now in an era where God was saying to them through Paul and others that the law has come to an end. And you see that, don't you, in verse 4. Verse 4 of our chapter actually is, is probably the summary verse of Romans 10. It says this, verse 4, Christ is the culmination. Now, if you have an older NIV, and other translations will have Christ is the end. Right? The more literal translation is end. I'll come to the meaning in a moment. But Christ is the end of the law. Right? Christ is the end of the law. And by this, he means the law of Moses, the thing that Jews hang their identity on. And then he goes on, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So this is like saying, Hurstville without Chinese people, Melbourne without cafes, Australia without beaches, my family without toilet humor. You, you suddenly don't know who you are anymore. And that's how the Jews found themselves on this side of Jesus. Now Romans 9, 10, and 11 are really a block, and we're dealing with it last week 9, this week 10, next week 11. It deals with that massive shift and you get the sense, not only that if you're a Jew, you feel the sense of personal and national sense of loss. Something's gone that used to be there, something so significant. But also, we saw last week with Pastor John, you might remember, it raises the whole question of God's faithfulness, right? God's faithfulness to His promises. I mean, didn't God give them the law of Moses? Wasn't it God who marked them out as His special people? Didn't He choose them? So why are the majority of them now firstly being told that the law is no longer relevant to them in the same way? But secondly, why are the majority of them in Paul's day actually enemies of the gospel? I mean, Paul spent most of his time running away from Jews that wanted to kill him in the early days, especially. Why didn't they believe? Those are the questions. Now, from last week, if you were here, Pastor John talked about Romans 9. And Romans 9 is really God's perspective, isn't it? And, and the answer he gives, why don't they believe, why, why is it, is because God is sovereign, He's in control, that is. His purposes and His plans rule over all. And in His sovereign call on people to be saved, it's based on mercy. It's not based on ethnicity, whether you're a Jew or not. It's not based on, based on whether you've lived a good life, you're worthy. No, it's based on His mercy, which means it's undeserved. That was last week based on his character, his core, which is based on mercy. Now this week, we're going to change camera angles a bit. Paul's going to answer the same question, but he's going to answer it from our perspective. In other words, the Bible is pretty consistent. When it talks about God being sovereign or in control, it doesn't say all of a sudden human beings are not responsible. And we don't have a choice. We're just robots. And there may be some of the feeling you get after last week, if you only read Romans 9, is, well, what about our own choices and responsibilities? Well, the Bible says they're not in conflict. God is sovereign. We are responsible. It's not either or. It's both and. And this chapter will deal with the human perspective. You see, he's going to say in Romans 10 that from the human perspective, the Jews have chosen. That's right. It was their choice, their responsibility. They've chosen to ignore God's new way through Jesus. They've chosen to go the wrong way. It should have been obvious and easy for them because they had the whole of the Old Testament. It should have been really clear. But they've chosen the wrong way. Okay, so that's really a snapshot of this chapter and wh why he's going on about where he's going on. Now, at this point, we haven't gone into the passage yet. You may think, well, that's interesting, but it seems miles away from our world. 
I mean, most people here, like me, you probably don't even know many Jewish friends who are devout Jews, not Jews who are just by birth and, you know, but devout Jews, synagogue-going Jews. I, I don't know any personally at this point in my life. And so how is this even relevant to me, to you? Well, I want to say it is relevant because the key points that Paul makes here is not just about how Jews are saved. It's actually much bigger than that. It's actually about how anyone is saved. You got that? This is actually about how anyone can have eternal life. When Paul, the author of Romans, he highlights two ways. These are the same two ways, the same two choices that you have, every single person has here, of how you're going to try and get to God. Right? Is it going to be religion, the way of religion? Or is it going to be the way of Jesus? And by the way, it's two ways, but only one of them will get you there. So it is very relevant to us. So let's pray and let's ask God to speak to us through this passage. Father, help us to understand quite a long and dense passage. Help us most of all, Lord. You know where every single person in this room is at. You know if they are seeking after you but have not yet come to faith in Jesus. Or you know where their faith just needs a, a boost, a reminder of how it is they've come to know you. We pray that whoever we are, we might hear you speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll see under your outlines in the bulletins, there's two ways, two conditions, two responses. So let's go. Point number one, two ways. As I said, uh, verse four is the key verse. In a sense, the rest of the chapter will go on to explain all the key words and ideas in that verse. So verse four again, Christ is the culmination or Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You get that verse, you get the whole chapter. Now, how is he going to uh, let the chapter explain that verse? Well, he's going to contrast two ways, right? And point number one, there's the way of my righteousness or the way of God's righteousness. Or the way of law versus the way of faith. Right? Is it for some people or is it for all people? And ultimately, is it Moses or Jesus? All right, we'll look at those under point one and following. So the first one, is it my righteousness or God's righteousness, the two ways. Verse 1, let's start from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they didn't know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, the key word there is obviously righteousness. Righteousness in these verses, what it means is the kind of life that makes a person acceptable with God. You got it? The kind of life that makes you acceptable with God. Because the Bible's pretty clear. God is perfectly righteous. That is, He is good perfectly. He's just. He's pure perfectly. He's morally without any darkness or blemishes. If God is like that, then what kind of a life does a person need to be acceptable to God? That's what righteousness means for us, yeah? How righteous do you need to be if God is perfectly righteous? What kind of life do you need to be acceptable before God? And the bigger question, I suppose, is how do you get there? How do you become righteous? How does God see you as acceptable? Now, there are two ways, remember? So the first way is the Jewish way. The Jewish way is verse 3. They establish their own righteousness, yeah? That is, I make myself acceptable to God. 
by trying to live as good of a life, uh, obedient of a life, a moral, as moral of a life, as religious of a life, as pure as a life I possibly can. But it's not just the Jews' way. As I said before, this is actually the common way of all religions, isn't it? Every single major world religion. The languages used are different. The words used are different. The concepts are different, right? But the goal is essentially the same. Religion is essentially a system based on merit. You know how merit works, right? You get what you deserve. You earn the marks you get. You earn the money you have. It's merit. The best make it. The worst don't. And so when it comes to God, if your good outweighs your bad, and that's how most people think, isn't it? When it comes to how do I get saved? How, how can I be sure I go to heaven? Well, do the scale thing. Does your good outweigh your bad? If it does, then you're acceptable before God or you're righteous, but you've got to establish your own righteousness. But the problem you see there is that that doesn't work because verse 3, they did not know the righteousness of God and they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, that way is a dead end because there is a different way and this is the only way. And this righteousness, the way of becoming acceptable before God, Paul says this second way, this only way, you don't earn this one. It's not a merit system. But instead of a merit system, let me introduce you three words, three adjectives of what kind of righteousness the Bible says is God's righteousness. They're not in this passage, but they're helpful ones to remember. Three words are passive, alien, imputed, right? Sorry, they're big words, especially the last one. Passive, I'll explain them. Alien and imputed. Passive, what does it mean? Passive as, as, as opposite of active. That is, this is a righteousness you don't earn, you don't work for. You're not active in creating it. You passively receive it. That's why it's passive. Secondly, it's alien. This has nothing to do with Martians, okay? Alien, in the, word, the meaning of the word, it's not yours. It's outside. It's foreign. That is, this righteousness is not yours. It didn't come from you. It's not even based on you. It's someone else's righteousness. It's alien. But how do you get it? The third one, imputed. Imputed means something is made to count as yours, even though it's not yours. It's like it's credited to you as a gift. It's not earned, right? It's credited to you. It's, it's, it's accounted as yours, even though it's not yours. Let me give you an example. A, couple, a few years ago, I had the privilege of um, heading over to China with World Vision, and it just happened that the CEO of World Vision, Tim Costello, was on that trip. It wasn't because of my connections, believe me. But I got to um, fly... Uh, back from China to Hong Kong with Tim Costello. Um, and I got to, for the first time ever, go into the Qantas Lounge, which, if you've never been, is really, really nice. You know, rather than sitting around on a normal chair and, you know, you're feeling all gross and stuff, like they have showers you can use for free, buffet and, you know, just everything. So I got to go to the Qantas Lounge. Now, afterwards, I was like, this is nice. I want to know how I can go to the Qantas Lounge more frequently. So I w went on the website, and it turns out you can either pay big bucks for it, or you can earn it by, like, corporate mileage stuff, right? If your company flies you regularly and they buy a package for you, right? Or if you earn lots of miles, you can actually go towards your membership or your access. Otherwise, forget it. For normal people like you and me, right, <laughs> you don't get to go to the Qantas Lounge. So how did I get to go to the Qantas Lounge? Well, 
I got in via Tim Costello, right? Because he had membership of the Qantas Lounge. And he was able to credit his, you get to bring someone, his membership so that it was as if I was a member. Do you see? For me, membership in the Qantas Lounge was passive. I didn't earn it. I didn't pay for it. It was alien. It wasn't my membership. It was his membership and it was imputed. They let me in on account of Tim. Righteousness is like that. When a, 15th, when a 16th century monk discovered this, and he discovered it through the book of Romans, not this chapter, but earlier on, it actually changed him, and it literally changed the word. Let me, world. Let me show you. I'm going to have this slide. What Martin Luther said, he said, There I began to understand, he's talking about Romans, that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, here's that word, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And then note how he's transformed by this. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And this discovery changed the world. So that's the two ways. My righteousness or God's. Well, it leads to the second contrast, doesn't it? Law or faith. So verse 5. Let's go to verse 5. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. And in your heart, that is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, the, the bulk of these verses, I agree, is a little bit confusing. The first is, like, what is it in Christ up, Christ down? What is this, like a heavenly elevator? What? Um, it's a little confusing because of the Old Testament quotes. But also, if you look up the Old Testament, it's a little bit strange because Paul does something funny with them. Um, before we get to explaining that, what should be clear, shouldn't it, is that, two ways. Yeah, is, is it law or is it faith? There's two ways of getting this righteousness. Is it law or faith? So let's go with the quotes. Firstly, he quotes in verse 5, Leviticus 18.5. We won't look it up, but it's Leviticus 18.5, and it says, the person who does these things will live by faith. It really sums up way number one, the Jewish way, right? The way that Jews and religious people pursue righteousness with God. It's by doing, yeah? In the parable in Luke chapter 18 that Russell read for us, it's the Pharisee who says, look what I've done. Thank you that I'm not like other men. Look what I've done, okay? This is the religious way, the Jewish way. You get there through obeying God's Old Testament laws, the laws given through Moses. It's by merit. That's from Leviticus 18. But the next quote or the series of quotes come from Deuteronomy chapter 30. You won't have to look it up because I will show you on the overhead. This next series of quotes illustrates the second way, the way of faith and what it looks like. So let's look at it in context. This is what the original quote says. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No. 
The word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. Um, just a bit of context. This is Moses' final speech to God's people before they're about to go into promised land in the book of Deuteronomy. If you've been doing Deuteronomy uh, in your CGs, this will make a lot more sense, won't it? But his point is this. He wants Israel, God's people, to know at that point in their nation's life that at the heart of their relationship with God, at least the relationship that God designed them to have, is a relationship of intimacy and trusting and obeying God's word. It's, it's personal. It's not, and, and his point is, it's not something undoable. It's something that God has already done all of the hard work for them. He's already given them his word. He's already revealed himself. He's already come down from heaven to give them his word. It's not out of reach. It's not like they have to go up into the heaven or go into the sea or whatever. Now, that's the context. But the spirit of this verse is, is exactly what Paul wants. And so Paul adapts it, doesn't he, in, in Romans 10. And he makes the same point, only he makes it about Jesus. Why does he make it about Jesus? Well, remember, key verse, verse number four. Christ is the, well, one translation, culmination of the law. See, one of the points he wants to make is that the whole law, including Deuteronomy 30, finds its fulfillment in Christ. So that's why he brings Jesus into it. He is the substance of what this quote is about. And Paul's point, like Moses' point, is that when you think about relationship with God by faith, by trust, it's not about reaching up or reaching down or reaching across. It's not actually about our efforts or our merits. It's all about Jesus. You see the point he makes in Romans 10 when he quotes it. You don't have to go up into heaven to bring Christ down. Why? Because God already did the hard work in bringing Christ down. In other words, you don't have to reach up to God because God already came down to you. In the first Christmas by becoming a man. You don't have to reach down and conquer the, the, the abyss or the death. There's a reason why a sea gets changed to death or abyss, sorry. It's because in the ancient world, the sea is basically a symbol of the abyss, of death, of horrible, watery, you know, underworld. You don't have to reach down and conquer death yourself because God already did that as well by raising Jesus up from the dead. That's what Paul is doing with these verses. But the point is this. When it comes to righteousness of getting the acceptable life with God, Paul's point is, look, there is another way apart from law, apart from works, apart from merit, apart from earning your own righteousness. And that way is Jesus. Because you see, Jesus was the only one, the only man who lived perfectly righteously. 100% always obeyed God in thought, action, deed. And He is willing to give you His perfect record, His perfect righteousness. And all you have to do is believe, to receive, to trust. Do you see, because of Jesus and His righteous record, you can have righteousness. What are those three words? That's passive, because He did it. Alien. It's His and not yours. And it's imputed because he's willing to count it as yours even though it's not yours. And Paul's point is you can have that and it's simple. It's by faith. It's by faith. Trusting, relying, believing in Jesus. Which means, verse 11, my next point, sorry, my next sub point, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richest blesses, richly blesses all who call on Him. 
for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? The Jewish way of self-righteousness, of law, of merit, means that it's only limited to those who have their law and followed their ways. And that was a pretty complicated system. The way of faith, however, means the gates are open wide. And everyone, all, whoever, Jew or Gentile, can have access. So you see in the end, it's a choice between, or ultimately two ways. It's Moses or Jesus, or more accurately, it's, it's the way of relating to God in the law system that God had set up in the Old Testament through Moses, or the new way of relating to God that God has now set up for all people by faith through Jesus. It's, and it's clear, isn't it, which era, which part of God's dealing with humanity we are in now. It's the second, it's through Jesus. Because verse 4 again, that key verse, Christ is the end of the law of Moses. Now here I want to explain the end word because as you see there's different translations. Actually they're both true. Because we think of end, there's the idea of end as in it's the termination point. All right, And so Christ is the end of the law in that the, the era of Moses and the law and the way that God reveals himself and deals with his people through the law, that, that period is over. That's the sense of the end. But there's also end in the second way, and that's the new NIV translation, the culmination way. That is, it's, it's end point is the idea there. It's the goal, the purpose, the destination. That's also another way of understanding. I think they're both true, right? Christ is the culmination of the law, and that's trying to make the point that God, it's not like God changed his mind or made a mistake. It's like, oh, no, this law thing's not going to work. I better go to plan B. That's a lot how a lot of people think of the New Testament. It's not like that at all. In fact, when God set up the law of Moses, it wasn't supposed to ever end in itself. It was also supposed to, always supposed to lead to Jesus. I'll give you an example. It's like training wheels on a bike, all right? If you've ever tried to teach your kids to ride a bike, you'll know that most parents go down the training wheel route. Now, the point of training wheels is so that they would ride on two wheels without training wheels one day, yeah? Right? The training wheels are not for its own sake. It has a culmination point it has an end goal and it's riding without training wheels but here's the funny thing about training wheels and those parents who've tried to change kids riding on training wheels to two wheels will find this really hard because what people don't realize is when you learn to ride on training wheels you become reliant on the training wheels and you engage a whole different set of skills to what riding on two wheels alone has you balance differently you steer differently Right? So actually, training wheels, which were designed to lead people to two-wheel riding, actually does sometimes the opposite, the longer they've been on training wheels. Okay? So if you're a parent, I recommend, cycling tip, don't do the training wheels thing. Get them one of those balanced bikes. But anyway, that's another story. Um, training wheels, you see, is a good illustration of the law. It was supposed to lead to life on two wheels without training wheels, but people get caught up on the training wheels, and they end up not knowing how to ride on two wheels. Like... Jews who refuse to believe in Jesus get obsessed about the law rather than where it leads to. Paul's point is, when Jesus comes along, he is both the termination, the end in the first sense, and the destination. It's, it's like a race, right? Those of you who know, I saw Manchun was training for the city to serve, you crazy person. Um, the finish line in a race is both the termination of the race and the destination of the race, isn't it? wasn't me okay and jesus 
when it comes to the law, both terminates it as an era of when, how God relates to his people, and he is also, in fact, also this culmination destination. All right, that was quite a dense little section. So let's go much more quickly to the two conditions. Because at this point, you might be thinking, well, if this is the case, then all you need is not the way of merit or law, but faith and trusting in Jesus. Why don't all people get saved? I mean, if it's not about religion, and it's not about race, and it's not about certain laws, then it should be easy, right? Why doesn't everyone get saved? Why doesn't even everyone get saved automatically? Well, you see, there are two conditions to get saved. Misunderstanding that salvation is unconditional. No, no, no. Salvation is conditional. But having a condition doesn't mean it becomes something you earn. You see, you can have a condition that still means it's free and unmerited and unearned. So salvation is by grace alone. I believe that. But it is conditional because a condition doesn't always equal merit. For example, if I win a big prize, Mother's Day thing or something, but the condition is I have to go in person to pick it up, it doesn't mean I've suddenly earned the prize any more than you have if you didn't win but I still need to fulfill the conditions if I'm to get the prize. You see what I mean? Right? Salvation does have conditions. It's actually two conditions, believing and hearing. So let's have a look at them quickly. The first condition for a person to be saved is you've got to believe. Now, the point's already been made because belief equals faith. Right? Same word, same idea. If it's not by the law, but it's by faith, then obviously you need to have faith as a condition. Now, verses 9 to 10 will spell that out. Look at verses 9 to 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. His point is, yes, believing, but you see, believing is not just head knowledge. Faith is not just head knowledge. It's a trust that comes from your heart. When the Bible means heart, it doesn't just mean your feelings and your emotions. It means your whole inner person. It means your emotions, but also your mind and your will and your desires, the, the, the you, the invisible you. That's your heart. That's where it comes from. But you see, it's not just internal and private if it's real faith. Paul's saying it's expressed on your lips, on your mouth, what you confess publicly through what you affirm. And this is particularly significant because in the ancient world where Paul was writing, people had to confess, and more and more so, that Caesar, the emperor, was Lord. And in fact, Christians would one day get thrown to the lions because they refused to confess that Caesar was Lord. But instead, out of their faith, confess Jesus as Lord. Right? But that's the first condition. You've got to believe. Notice what it's not. And here's really significant, isn't it? It's not become a Jew. That's not a condition. It's not get circumcised. That's not a condition. It's not keep ritually clean. It's not obey the commandments. It's not earn God's favor. It's not give 10% like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. It's not pray five times a day like the Muslims. No, it's believe. That's it. Condition one. Number two, though. In order for belief to happen, you've got to hear. Right? Because faith is actually primarily an organ that's related to hearing. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he asked, how then? Can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And then it goes on. Skip to verse 17. He makes the same point. Faith comes from what? Hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. At this point, you need to know not all religions are about hearing, are they? Because not all religions are about understanding 
and about knowing and about believing and about trusting. Not all religions value the spoken word, communicating clearly, preaching, doctrine, reason. These are things, if you're part of the Christian tradition, you know pretty well. But for example, Eastern religions, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, is actually more about emptying your mind rather than filling your mind. It's more about intuition than it is about understanding. It's more about transcending than hearing. But you see, Christianity is based on a relationship of trust and faith and belief. So words and promises and truth, all of these matter a lot. That's the second condition, it's hearing. Now, both conditions, believing and hearing, they seem so obvious. But why does Paul mention them? Well, because Jews have fulfilled one condition but not the other. That's Paul's point in this chapter. Remember, he's answering the question, why is it that Jews have not been saved on the whole? His answer is they fulfilled one but not the other condition. Which condition have they fulfilled? The second one. See, verses 16 to 21 are making the point that Jews have heard. In fact, Paul is the one sent to preach to the Jews, and he's done that all over the ancient world. Verse 18, he says, But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. They fulfilled one condition. They're responsible because they have heard. But if they're not saved, if you're not saved, it's because of condition number one, not two. Because they refuse, stubbornly refuse to believe what they've heard. And that's how he ends the chapter, doesn't he? Verse 21, but concerning Israel, he says, is God, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Finally then, time to respond. If there are two conditions, then there are two responses that match up with these two conditions. The first one is obviously believe. Every week there are people here who are not yet Christians. And I know there are people here today who are not yet Christians. And it doesn't matter, you see, the great news is it doesn't matter if you've come as a religious person in another religion or even in the the sub-Christian religion. You think being a Christian is about being religious. Or you've come from an irreligious, a non-religious. You might have come from an atheist family, an atheist country. At this point, it doesn't matter whether you're religious or you're irreligious. See the point? You can be saved by trusting and believing in Jesus. You can be right with God. You can be acceptable before God based on His righteousness that's passively received. It's alien and imputed to you. You can become a Christian today. It's not going to take a long, drawn-out initiation process. You can believe today. If you haven't done that, do that. It's open to you. Come and see me, Pastor Jono, any of the elders. But here it is. If you are a Christian, the majority of you are, if you have believed, simple question, are you continuing being shaped by this belief. In other words, justification by faith alone. Justify is the verb of righteous. If you're justified, you are made righteous or declared righteous, okay? What I've been talking about without using the word justification so far is that we are justified, made righteous by trusting by faith alone. Now, if you are a Christian, then this is true of you. But do you know how wonderful this doctrine is, that you are justified by faith alone? Because let me just spell out very quickly what it means. It means, I no longer have to live in fear or guilt or shame before God. So this week, have you been living in fear and guilt and shame before God? Because if you're justified by faith alone, you don't have to. It means I can get off the performance treadmill. Because it's not about merit anymore. 
And it means I don't have to find my self-worth from what I do or even how you see me, how much I achieve or how good I am. Justification by faith is precious because all of a sudden my identity and security is rooted not in what I do, but in what Jesus has done for me and I am secure and eternally secure because God justifies me and you through Jesus' perfect, unblemished record of righteousness. Do you live each day in light of that? Condition number one, response number one, believe. Really believe that. But number two, you, you see it's go. Um, it's not here, but it's related to the hearing because verses 14 and 15 really spell it out, don't they? They're the classic missionary verses. You've probably heard them preached on before on a mission Sunday. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, this sometimes is often taken out of context, as if this wasn't happening in the cockiness of Romans 10. But actually, Paul is saying these things because he's leading into the next few verses. And his point is that this has happened. See, when it comes to mission to the Jews in his day, he wants to say they have heard. Because I've preached to them, and I've preached to them because I've been sent to them. But the problem is they've heard but not listened, okay? Not believed. That's the context with Paul preaches that, and sorry, writes about that. But having said that, though, these are good missionary verses because while they were true of the Jews of the people he was writing about Paul then in the first century, it's actually not true, is it? Of the many, many unsaved people in our world today, Is it true that like the Jews of Paul's day in the cities he's gone to, that they've heard because people have preached and they've preached because people have sent? The answer is, of course, no. Because 40% of the world's people groups, right? 40% of the world's people groups. This is a grouping based on language and culture and ethnic identity. 40% of them are classified as what? Unreached. Do you know what unreached means? Unreached means that there are not enough believers in that people group to evangelize their own people. That is, if there are believers, it's pretty much ineffective because they're not going to be able to reach their people group just through those handful of believers. 40%, nearly half of the world are in that category, which means 40% of the world haven't even had the opportunity to hear. And remember, they just need to hear. Like we're talking, remember, this is not religion. It's not you got to do all these things, X, Y, and Z. No, you hear, you believe, that's it. They haven't even had the opportunity to hear that God sent Jesus for them. That God loves them. That Jesus died for them. That they can be right with God through Jesus by faith. That they can be eternally secure and escape the coming judgment. They haven't even had the opportunity to hear then how can they unless someone preaches to them and is sent to preach to them? Maybe God is moving you to go to one of these people groups. And if that's you, it's so good that you're part of this church because we want to send you. We want to equip you. We want to go there. So come and see us. But you know what? It's not just overseas missions, is it? Let me ask you, how many, if you're a Christian here, how many of your friends, how many of your family members, how many of your neighbors 
schoolmates, uni friends, have actually heard the good news. And not a form of the good news, not what they think the good news is, not what they think Christianity is. How many of them actually heard that Christianity is not a religion of merit? That it's not about being good or earning your merit with God. That it's actually free grace through Jesus. Like, honestly, you ask yourself the question, how many of them have actually heard that? And the answer is probably very few. Yeah? These are the people you and I interact with every day. Let me give you one example. I get the privilege, and Sherilyn does too, of teaching Scripture. We have this amazing, wonderful law that says that when churches offer to teach Scripture in schools in New South Wales, that we, the schools have to comply. We have to have time with the kids who nominate themselves as coming from some sort of faith background. But here's the thing. The people we teach Scripture to, right, some of them even go to church. But I'll tell you, every week when I teach Scripture, that is where I get to share the gospel the most with unbelievers. These kids, even church kids, they haven't heard but they get to hear because school makes them and the government allows us to at this point in time and who knows how long that's going to last it's just in New South Wales and very few states these kids primary age, high school age they get to hear because of this open window but let me tell you there are far too many schools where there's no one willing to teach scripture in them not enough scripture teaching. Schools would be open and willing and ready, but there's not enough scripture teaching. So just on that, have you ever thought about, I mean, if you're a unition, it's a little bit easier. Well, I got a morning free. I can make sure I can juggle my timetable, 10 o'clock, different schools at different scripture times. I want to teach scripture. You can do that. Come and see me. But maybe you can't because you're a full-time worker, full-time parent, full-time whatever. But you know what? You can give. You can give money to scripture boards. I'm involved in one in the Banktown area. And we want to employ two part-time scripture teachers so that those who can't volunteer to teach in these schools that are in Bankstown are ready for scripture teachers and, but not have, have enough scripture teachers that they'd be able to, we'd be able to fund them. So if you can't do it, if you can't go, will you give? Come and see me if you're interested in that. All right? Because if the second condition is hearing... And that leads to believing. And it's as simple as that. Then the question is, are we going? Let's pray. Move us, Father, to believe. And move us, Father, by your Spirit. In whatever way we can, to go. In Jesus' name.